welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. As always, you can listen to our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, YouTube. You may also check out our website, supercriticalpodcast.com, for a full list of episodes and the occasional bonus feature or two. And this is another one of our mini nuke episodes. This is where we find some sort of pop culture, whether it's movies or TV, where the nuclear plot isn't really the big thing. It's enough of a chunk and it's enough of an impact that we feel like talking about it on an episode here. So these are our mini nuke episodes. My name is Timothy Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. And I'm joined here by my usual co-host, Joel. Hi, this is Joel. I've always wondered if I could ever cry on cue. And I thought if I could do that, I would be eminently qualified to talk about the leftovers and thus be on this podcast. So it's good to join you today, Tim. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty dark and depressing show some of the times. And it's also very fitting for a show that's about sudden departure, where 2% of the population just disappears all of a sudden. And that today is your last episode as the, uh, the regular co-host of the Supercritical Podcast. You're making your departure... It has been a good good run, but like any Damon Lindelof episode, uh, there's always uh, a time for a finale. Uh, but this is just my finale, but I, I will still be around, annoying Tim with my own comments and thoughts after watching various movies and uh, TV shows. So, uh, but I couldn't think of a better um, couldn't think of a better storyline slash uh, topic to discuss for my own departure than the leftovers. You got a new job that's going to take up too much time. <laughs> to spend three hours talking about a, a random nuclear rant that I have. But, you know, much like how the, these shows have flashbacks where the characters that die or come back, maybe, okay. at some, maybe at some point we can squeeze in some time in the future if there's something of particular interest to you. So, Flashback, flash forward, <laughs> uh, flash sideways. We'll see you then soon. Yep. I have noticed with Leftovers, it's not flash anything it's realms i saw a lot of articles talking about mm. the death realm and i was like oh we're talking about realms okay i see in the in this realm of this episode uh we're going to talk about the leftovers uh which is a show on hbo from 2014 to 2017 this was a show that i think you and i both really enjoyed uh maybe we didn't like the first season as much as season two and three but overall i think it's one of my top 10 uh favorite shows but let's focus mostly today on season three, which ended on June fourth, twenty seventeen, and if for if you want to watch these episodes again for our podcast, we're talking about episode two, episode five, and episode seven of season three, in particular. The whole show in general, but these are the ones to definitely watch and, and check out for. This show was it's largely written by Damon Lindelof, who we who Joel and I know and love from Lost and Prometheus, uh, but also Tom Periota. Uh, who was the author of the book by the same name that season one is largely based off of. Now, Tim, don't forget Cowboys and Aliens. I mean, come on, man. Respect the discography. Yeah, I might just kind of put that one aside for for Damon. That's okay. Everyone has their hits and misses. Uh, We've had some bad episodes in this podcast, so I can't complain too much. But one of the person I love to, to mention here is Mimi Letter, who you might remember as the director of The Peacemaker, that Nicole Kidman, George Clooney romp, uh, with nuclear weapons, that she came on in season two 
as a director and a, for some of the, some of the episodes, and it's kind of like a partial producer, and she really helped the direction of this show. It's really great to see her creative hand in, episode, in season two and three. It's cool to see that she continues to think about nuclear issues and those topics uh, as the season three progressed. The Leftovers is one of those shows where, even though it's critically acclaimed, not a ton of people have seen it. You know, it's not as popular as Game of Thrones, but it's more popular than since some of the other already shows on, on, on HBO. So we'll, we'll talk about The Leftovers from season one to season three, focusing mostly on season three where a lot of the nuke stuff happens. But obviously we're going to spoil a lot of it. So if you haven't seen the finale of, of The Leftovers or if you're still interested in seeing it, maybe pause this episode, go and watch it, uh, and, then, and then come back to the episode. Or this, maybe this conversation might make you interested in the show overall. It's because this is one of those shows that you could talk for five minutes about it, and maybe you'll get a tiny little bit of a sense of what the show's about, or you can talk for 10 hours about it and then still probably be in the same situation. Because the scenario for the show is, and Joel, you can jump in here anytime you have a, something to add, because I think it's a show where it benefits from multiple people looking at it. All of a sudden, in a normal world, 2% of the population just vanishes. Everyone's going about their day-to-day -day life. Some people are driving to work. Some people are going to the grocery store. 2% of the population just vanishes, which is, you know, millions of people. And it's pretty much everywhere around the world. These people just disappear, and there's no explanation for why it happens. It's not like, and the people who are witnessing this, who see their loved ones or strangers on the street disappear, it changes pretty much their entire understanding of, of life. And you see a world where... Everyone has to deal with those consequences. Some people try to go about their lives like normal, and then they realize the world has changed and it's nothing's making any sense anymore. Some people turn away from God. Some people turn to God as an explanation. Some people join a cult. A cult that says nothing matters. And it follows our characters and, and how this affects their lives. We have people like Kevin Garvey, the main character played by Justin Theroux, who's a cop in this small town in Mapleton, and trying to keep uh, keep order in the town, but also the fact that his wife, Lori, uh, ends up joining a cult. She leaves their their two children and just goes and joins this cult where she, no one can talk, uh, and everyone smokes cigarettes, and wears white to basically be nihilistic about what the world is and how we shouldn't be moving on because everything's changed, and that's kind of their coping mechanism there. Uh, you have Nora, who had three of her family, her two young children and her husband, instantly vanish at the breakfast table. And she's trying to grapple with the fact that she's lost her entire family all of a sudden with no explanation. You have characters like Matt, who's Nora's brother. His wife didn't get departed. She didn't vanish. But someone else did while they were driving a car. And that crashed into their car. And his wife is paralyzed. So he has to deal with that aspect to it and whether or not his role as a preacher uh, in a pretty devout religious individual, has that changed? his interpretation of, of the world. <laughs> this is the kind of show that The Leftovers is, and that's the premise that we work with uh, throughout season one, two, and three. So Joel, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add before we get talking a little bit more about the details of season three. No, I think you covered I guess just to highlight that the, the different characters, and you'll see this all the way through the end of the, when we get to the finale, kind of reflecting the different, you know, emotional reactions, everything from the... I don't know what's going on. I need answers to, you know, people who jump to the first thing that, that offers an answer mm -hmm. to the diehard skeptic who says, 
yes, this happened, but we don't know anything. There's no meaning to it. It just happened, and we got to move on. And so I think the cast brings out more than just the sum of the parts because the performances reflect the different emotions that one would think would come out if you were faced with that same uh, same situation. So it was fun to see the characters go in their different paths throughout the seasons. It's easy to want to wanna know, is the show going to be about where the people that disappeared went to? Are they just gone? Are they dead? Uh, is it a religious thing? Is it the end of the world? Is it rapture? We need explanations for that. And some people turn to that within the, the world. Or is it scientific? Is it some kind of solar flare or radiations does it something you know radiation it's always unexplainable maybe that's the reason are they all somewhere else off in an alternate universe and they all have superpowers you know like where where does that go because because but the show the leftovers it teases those ideas and it's fun to talk about that stuff but i've always considered this show to be season one and two is about loss how people deal with grief in a particular way that's unique to them and their circumstances and, and how that people process things and want to find meaning in sometimes just random acts of, of, of life. The Leftovers plays with that idea, and it creates uh, circumstances for tri people trying to explain the unexplainable. And one of the ways that people in the show think about this stuff is uh, Kevin's father has apparently a history of schizophrenia, hearing voices having mental health issues where to the point where he's institutionalized at some point. But when you have a, a world where 2% of the population just disappears, maybe the person that's hearing voices that's telling them why it happened isn't crazy. Maybe they're another religious uh, story example of someone hearing voices and it's the voice of God or angels telling them what to do. So the, the show plays with those kind of ideas. And Kevin, our main character, also starts to have visions. He has visions of potentially someone going around in the first season killing dogs. And he wonders whether or not anyone else can see this person who says that killing the dogs is important because it'll stop the world from ending again. And later on, he starts to see dead people. And it, you wonder, is this in his head, like his father's mental health issues? Or is this relating to the world that we're, we're seeing where, where 2% of the population just vanishes? So you have all these characters that try to explain the different uh, activities here. And it, ultimately, at some point, the season one ends with the the guilty remnant, who are this cult that we talked about earlier. They set up this big climax where they f basically create body doubles for everyone's family who lost someone in the departure. And they put them in the same clothes that they were when they disappeared. And that causes everyone to freak out because it's screwing with people's interpretations of, of how they respond to grief. Hell breaks loose in season one. The, our characters decide in season two to move to a place in, in Jardin, Texas called Miracle. And it's called Miracle because it's the only place in the country where no one departed from, not a single person. And then you have an alternate example where people are talking in Jardin, Texas and Miracle about why their town is so special that nothing happened. It's a popular, I don't know how you describe it, Joel, like a tourist location, like a religious mecca uh, people going there for different reasons why this place is special. I, I, the word I always thought of was spectacle, where, you know, it, and I think in the show, it's actually been designated a federal historic, like a landmark, so that in order to get in, you actually have to go through federal officials at the this one main bridge to get to the town. So you have to have these wristbands to even get in. 
Uh, it's really hard to buy property there. It's like a national park. In the national park, that's right. So, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of walled off in more ways than one. And outside are all these folks. I don't know, it just made me think of, I don't know too much about Burning Man. but <laughs> You know, it's just kind of all these crazy characters, some religious, some just wanting to be where there are cameras, uh, other people who are, you know, just kind of stragglers who think they might have answers here. Uh, and so the, the characters try to find some sense of normalcy in Jarden slash Miracle, but of course it's the leftovers, and so you need uh, lots of crying on cue, so uh, they don't get much peace and quiet, unfortunately, in season two. They don't, and uh, Kevin, our main character here, he starts to go through a series of what I would also call miracles to him and to the people that are around him. He tries to kill himself. He jumps in a lake, and there's an earthquake, and the lake drains of water, so he doesn't end up killing himself. But he doesn't have like memories of this, and he it's unclear what happens. Then at some point, he gets shot point blank, and he survives. Another point, he is told that if he drinks poison, he'll be able to travel across the universe or across to an alternate dimension, do something, cross over, whatever that happens to mean. And, and he can start to grapple with the visions that he's seen of someone who died previously, the leader of this cult from season one. Uh, so he drinks poison, and he has one of the best episodes, I think, of the show uh, near the end of the second season where he, in this crossover world, he dreams kind of. It's hard to describe. I'm going to call it a dream, but it's not necessarily a dream. But he believes he's an international assassin at a hotel who's tasked with running through these series of pretty overtly symbolic, not so uh, subtle, very much on the nose allegories of the kind of problems that he's dealing with where ultimately he ends up killing the the cult leader again and in his way to try to move on from his situation. And he ends up not dying from drinking poison. Gets buried alive, comes back, uh, and at the end of it, people look at him and go, you're kind of like Jesus. You're kind of like the story of someone who keeps being risen from the dead and can't die. I think you might be the Messiah. And then he has to now grapple with, am I the Messiah? Can I stop the world from ending? Or am I just crazy and lucky at the exact same time? And the show plays with that idea. And then other things are, that are crazy in, in season two um, are that Matt's, Matt's wife, who was paralyzed for all of the previous years, uh, all of a sudden can walk again. And it comes out of this catatonic state. And people think, wow, it's another miracle and miracle. Nora, the other one of our main characters, she goes through a series of realizations about herself and whether or not she really is over the loss of her two children and her husband, uh, who she didn't like because he was cheating on her at the exact same time that she finds out. But she's still trying to grapple with the fact that everyone says, oh, I'm so sorry you lost your family. And she's like, well, I'm sad that I lost my children. A lot of season two is about whether or not she, she and Kevin, who are now a, a couple in Miracle, Texas, whether or not they can move forward and realize that they're both kind of screwed up. Can they trust each other to be honest? about the fact that one of them's having visions of seeing dead people. And the other one's like, I haven't really moved on from the loss of my children. And then in season three, we find out that Kevin Sr., uh, who was originally in a mental institution, has now been released and has decided that he's no longer going to fight the voices that he's hearing in his head. And he goes to Australia uh, because he believes that the world, seven years after the original departure, 
that the world is going to have another Noah-like flood that will cover the entire world. And the only way to stop it is he needs to find this song that the aboriginals in Australia sing to bring the rain and stop the rain. And he tries to find this song and he doesn't get the song because one of the last people that he needs to teach him the song dies. So he thinks that he needs to cross over to the afterlife uh, and be told this song. And at the same time, he finds out that his son apparently dying and coming back and having visions when he's gone. So he finds out that the son, and through another series of mysteries, uh, ends up going to Australia as well. Season three is about convincing Kevin that he is some sort of messiah-like figure and that he needs to be killed and go across the, the, the afterlife, whatever this is, and get this song. Well, at the same time, someone is telling Nora who in her job is like a fraud investigator, but fraud investigating for people who claim that they de- that their family departed. Even though this is an un- unexplained mystery in the world, anyone who departs still gets government benefits. And there has to be a bureaucracy created to distribute those benefits because when you have 2% of the population, of your population disappear, it puts quite a strain on, on people's, people's lives. Uh, one cool way that shows kind of bring sci-fi surreal stuff to life is by adding that level of bureaucracy to it. So if something like this did happen, well, how would the government react? How, mm-hmm. would, how would the governments react? And so through Nora's job, you kind of see how everything's been bureaucratized where uh, you, you could imagine if all of a sudden people disappear what does that mean for insurance? What does that mean for death benefits? Did they really die? How do you confirm? What if someone just wanted to not have to deal with their spouse that they hate now? And so they just get in a car and drive away and they say, oh, it's, it's fine. They'll just think I departed and I'm, I'm going to go to Mexico. Yeah. Well, one of the people that does that is uh, Mark Lynn Baker, who you might know as one of the cast members of the, the TV show Perfect Strangers. Three of his cast members actually departed. He takes that as an opportunity to disappear to Mexico. And everyone thinks, well, he disappeared. I guess he also departed. And so Nora's role is almost like a Mulder and Scully X-Files, but if everyone believed the (laughs) X-Files. Exactly. And they they go through, you know, in various episodes, her process and you know you see there's like a government agency that's been created to basically go through a series of interview questions and there's a whole process to to confirm whether someone's departed or if there's fraud etc um so that you know it can be cataloged and archived and uh cuz you know they're they're always trying to better understand who departed and why so Nora has become in in many ways considered the skeptic of the show where she's She's always looking at a conversation assuming there's some kind of lying going on, whether it's a lie to other people for financial reasons or a lie to oneself to cover up their own horrible past that somehow the departure kind of ignited. Well, so in season three, she's approached by Mark Lynn Baker. Just to clarify, we probably should note, we say a perfect strangers, but in the show, it's actually Mark Lynn Baker of the show Perfect Strangers. So it's not like, oh, it's that guy from Perfect Strangers. No, no, no. It's the (laughs) actor playing himself as an actor who was in the show Perfect Strangers. 
And HBO is known for of actors and celebrities playing themselves. The leftovers right. just got in on it. I just think at some point Game of Thrones is going to have like Scott Bakula on, and it's he's just going to be Scott Bakula. He's just hanging out, riding in on a dragon. Or right. Something. He just appears like Quantum Leap and then disappears. Right. I can see that happening. Mark Lynn Baker has this really funny scene where he like takes out index cards and starts to explain the different types of radiation. Uh, and he sounds a lot like me on this podcast when I'm like, well, actually, there's four types of radiation. There's there's alpha particles. There's gamma particles. There's neutrons, uh, beta particles. Oh, I'm sorry. I need to have the card so I, I don't make a mistake with the science. I thought was that was kind of funny. Well, he is picking up a second job at this point. So yeah, I thought yeah. he did a pretty good job for someone who's you know picking up physics or quantum physics or I don't know, whatever on the side of acting. Pretty much, yeah. It's not, it's not bad. I'm just glad he's working again. <laughs> uh, he's, he's got a fun Twitter account, if you ever follow it. Uh, he's, got, he's got some funny stuff in there. So at some point in Season 3, Nora is approached by the Mark Lynn Baker, uh, and he says, some scientists in Sweden have discovered that the people who departed left behind some kind of radiation signature, some neutron radiation signature, which they call low amplitude Denzinger radiation, LADR. And these scientists have found a way to replicate it. And they believe that if they shoot something with this radiation, it then goes and disappears to the place where everyone else that was that 2% that departed, where they went to. Nora at first is skeptical. She thinks this is a fraud. Uh, I think she calls it like a carrot stick con or something like that. Well, and they make all these references because, you know, she goes down to her office and there are all these, you know, Mulder and Scully, you know, loose and tie FBI agent types like, oh, we got another fraud. You know, like they've seen it a thousand times where and I think she refers to it like these are common things now, just like you have email phishing or phone scams. Mm -hmm. Now you have people saying, oh, we can reunite you with your loved ones or we're able to talk with your loved ones who departed to pay $1,000 and we can connect you to them. Yeah, but even though she's a, a doubting Thomas, as they call her later on in season three, uh, even though she's that skeptic person, there are things that make her believe that this might actually be the case. So she decides to travel to Australia where they said that's, that's where the machine is set up. She brings Kevin with her over there and she appears to go through this this system. She is clearly not over the, the loss of her children. She doesn't believe that they're dead. She believes that they're still alive somewhere and they're just lost and that she needs to get to them because they must be scared without her, wherever they happen to be. So she goes in the machine after she has this big fight with Kevin uh, where Kevin and Nora essentially throw... They're honest with each other about their, their current feelings and the problems that they're going through. But they don't deal with it very well. They Kevin accuses Nora of not being able to move on and that she should go be with her children. And Nora tells Kevin that he's seen dead people again and that he believes he's the Messiah and that she's not really re able to handle that. So they essentially break up at that point and they go their separate ways. So Nora goes in the machine. They tell her it's going to send her somewhere. But we don't see her actually get zapped with radiation. She gets filled up in this dome sphere like structure with water that's not really water but right before she's about to get covered by water you hear her either gaps for breath to hold her breath or she says something uh and then the kind of the episode ends she believes either she's going to get sent to this world where everyone is departed to or she's going to get killed with, 
radiation that the whole thing's a scam. Or maybe the people that are doing the experiment really think that they're sending people, but really all they're doing is just zapping people with radiation and cremating them, and they disappear. So we're not really sure what happened. So while Nora is trying to figure out if the machine's real and where she's going to go if she gets zapped by this thing, which reminds me of the Terminator franchise where you're you know, time-traveling naked, Kevin is also going through his own situation where uh, he finds himself having to go back into what I, I saw a few articles refer to as the death realm, uh, although this, the series is never quite clear as far as whether this is a real realm or if this is just something in Kevin's head or some kind of near-death experience that's maybe real, maybe not, something like that. But clearly incorporating characters from his actual life, he wakes up to find himself as the assassin persona he had previously, but he then finds out through someone that his next mission is he's not in the hotel. Uh, he's actually uh, in Australia, and he has to. his mission is to assassinate the president of the United States. Uh, unlike, I think, the last episode where he was this assassin character, in this one he actually starts jumping around mm -hmm. uh, the world that, that he's inhabiting. And at one point he realizes that when he's, like, switching, he actually he still looks like himself, but he realizes he is the president of the United States. And so he keeps going back and forth between him as the assassin, as the president of the United States. And you can tell he's one or the other because in one, he has this beautiful beard when he's the president. A pretty good beard, not going to lie. And also a pretty uh, snazzy white suit, white jacket, white pants, white shirt, white uh, tie. U.S. presidents could never get away with that. They could probably be the leader of some kind of cult, but they couldn't get away with wearing all white. I remember when Barack Obama once wore a tan suit to a meeting and all hell broke loose. I don't think he can get away with wearing all white, even if it's before Labor Day. <laughs> exactly. So we have this kind of back and forth where Kevin, the two Kevins, are basically running around. They're not really, you're never really quite sure what are the rules of the world. Like, why is he the president of the United States? Why is he an assassin? It's just, he is, everyone addresses him either as a president or as this assassin. And so he's just trying to, in many, way, in many ways, play along while he's trying to, like, seek out the various people in the world that have died that he's trying to communicate with. But as they're doing that, uh, all of a sudden, as the president character, he gets pulled into essentially a situation room. Mm -hmm. And Tim, I'll let you go into the details of this. But essentially, he is presented with facts that he needs to launch a nuclear strike against Russia. And we find out that the secretary of defense, who is trying to get him to do this, is played by none other than Patty, the cult leader who we thought Kevin had killed for the second and final yeah. time. But apparently is alive and well, you know, I guess not ironically in the death realm. You'd think that if uh, someone's dead, they'd be in the death realm, uh -huh. alive and well. So you, you then learn that she's wanting to kickstart uh, a nuclear attack against Russia so that Russia will retaliate and essentially everyone will die because everyone in the world, according to Patty, is expecting something to happen at the seventh year anniversary of the departure they want something to happen, so why not give it to them? Why not have the world end a nuclear apocalypse? Uh, so it's kind of like a Terminator situation where we launch weapons at the Russians and they, as part of their retaliatory strike, launch weapons at us and then the world ends because we decide to launch everything. But before we get more into that, 
because um, there's this whole great scene that we'll talk about in a little bit where there's a protocol in place. It's not just the normal way that we think uh, the president launches a weapon. So there's the nuclear football that the president needs to authorize the launch, but there isn't just a button to push or codes to enter. It follows this thing which the show calls the Fisher Protocols, and it's called an ethical deterrent. The only way that the president is able to get the launch key to activate the nuclear football to, to launch a weapon is he needs to cut open the body of a living volunteer who has the key surgically implanted behind their heart. So they have to basically kill this volunteer to get the launch key to activate the bombs. And hopefully this is a way to discourage the president from making a rash decision when it comes to nuclear weapons. And it's a scene I think a lot of people were looking at and were like, whoa, the leftovers comes up with this crazy idea. It's not an idea that they entirely invented. It's something that has been discussed for quite a while as an idea. It's also not the only big nuclear scene in season three, because in episode five, there's this really amazing scene that starts the episode. Usually in season three, there's an opening music montage like for the credits. It's like a different song for each of the episodes that tries to maybe give you a preview of what the theme is. And at season five, it starts with someone, sounds like they're praying in French, and because it's not translated, there's no subtitles. It's just someone spoken verse praying uh, over to the sounds of what sounds like the pinging of a sonar detection system on a submarine. And sure enough, the first scene, you see what looks like an underwater monster appearing like that Star Destroyer in the opening scene in Star Wars, where it kind of comes above the screen and, and forward. It looks like an underwater monster or maybe like a gigantic whale because it's like roaring. And then occasionally you hear like the sonar pings and then you see the propellers and you realize it's a submarine. And, but then we see this guy who has a blank stare on his face and he opens up a safe, pulls out a key that he then puts around his neck that has a chain attached to it. Then he gets totally naked, plays really loud music throughout the submarine. Because it's HBO Tim, so he's got to be naked. There's a naked quota for HBO. Right. So he plays this really loud music. It causes someone to run into the room. He kills that person takes their key that's also around that person's neck. So now he's got two keys and he runs naked down the submarine hallway. People are chasing after him. He runs into this command center, locks the door behind him. Everyone's banging to try to get in, but he's locked the door. And he does this yoga pose that allows him to turn the two keys at the exact same time, one with his hands, others with his toes opens up another safe. He pulls out a joystick, kind of like a video game. It's got a nice big red button. He closes his eyes, pushes the button, and in a couple scenes later on, we find out a nuclear weapon was launched with a missile out of the submarine to hit an uninhabited island somewhere in the Pacific. And the bomb gone went off, and everyone's like, uh, where did this happen? The French are saying, uh, it wasn't us. We promise we don't know what happened here. And I think one of the most hilarious parts of this whole thing is people are like worried about it. It affects the plot because all flights have been grounded, which I'm not really sure. I guess all flights would be grounded. I don't know. But flights are grounded, but most of the people are in the, like our characters are still saying, eh, it's not the biggest thing we have to worry about right now. They're all still concerned about stopping the end of the world. Uh, we're dealing with their own personal crisis. So 
I guess unlike the sub uh, scene, we needed a lot more nuclear bombs for this next go around. So we end up having Patty convincing the two Kevins to essentially launch a nuclear strike. And, I, you know, you don't really understand fully, I think, why they do it. There's a general reference to, hey, might as well, again, ironically, like destroy the death realm and kill everyone in the death realm to make it go away. But if you're thinking about it, they're already dead, right? But anyway, one of the Kevins, the president Kevin, cuts open assassin Kevin, takes out the key, and does start the um, the launch sequence. And then Patty kind of takes his hand in this very like surreal uh, kind, like, oh, let's go watch, as if they're going to watch fireworks. <laughs> they go up to the rooftop, just as you see what's probably, I tried to kind of roughly count, probably a couple dozen I counted, yeah. Oh, you, of course you would count. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'm a weirdo. Like these, you know, little uh, things. They look like maybe jets in the sky. And then you start, oh, these must be the nuclear warheads. And then they start getting closer and closer. And then you see one that gets really close. And basically it goes full white, uh, you know, implying that the nuclear bombs went off. Maybe this is a spoiler for Lost. So skip ahead 10 seconds if this is a spoiler for Lost. But in Lost, there's also a nuclear bomb that goes off. And when it does go off, or maybe, I don't know, we think it goes off, it also turns to white. And usually the show fades to black. This is the first time it faded to white. So another Damon Lindelof fingerprint on that. But yeah, so the bombs go off. And I think I counted between 70 and 80 nuclear warheads slash looks like missiles. Tim, are you you saying you paused it and you literally counted 70? uh... I didn't do that. That's crazy. What I did was I, I, I paused it, took a screenshot printed it on a color printer and then circled to make sure that I would count them and not double count anything. Mm, gotta be thorough. Uh, so I, between 70 and 80 warheads or missiles that ended up attacking just this one town in Australia. Mm. We're not doing a great job of talking about the leftovers it, it, because it's a show that it's really about watching the characters and, and watching the interactions and the acting and it's a lot of layers and it would be taking three hours just to to cover the entirety of the episodes. But it has all this nuclear content, and now that we outlined the plot, I think we, is, uh, we can get super critical about it. So let's do that, Joel. Let's first talk about this low amplitude Denziger radiation that Mark Lynn Baker talks about. Um, again, Mark Lynn Baker of Perfect Strangers. And Joel, I know you're a fan of Perfect Strangers. Are you excited to see him in this role? It, it was cool to see him... It was a, a surprise, but then I realized it probably shouldn't have been a surprise because throughout the series, they've always had these fun little flourishes of, I think, what was it, Gary Busey? Or like, oh, Gary Busey was one of the people who departed. I wonder what, what happened there. And so you just kind of get into these weird, not weird, but you just fun like, oh, yeah, you think of the Pope or you think of, you know, dictators or other certain people being the, the, in the spotlight. And you don't think of like, oh, yeah, what would happen to Larry and Balky? In right. What happened if, if some of the cast members of that show left? This fun way that Lindelof and company kind of play with with people and their storylines to figure out, oh, you know, where did they go? Where did they come from? Uh, how, how is their life impacted by the uh, the departure? I, I, we talked about this a little bit in the episode we did on Special Bulletin, the TV movie where the media covering a nuclear terrorism incident where a bomb goes off. And it's this is how people might cover this. And it's a very cynical way of looking at it because three days after the bomb goes off, thousands of people have died. It's like, eh, well, 
now we have new news to cover. So they kind of move on from that in this weird cynical way. I think the interesting, interesting thing about The Leftovers is there's this unexplainable event. It's causing some people to literally lose their mind in joining cults or coming up with this crazy conspiracy theory. There's similar to Lost, there's this running side show to watching the show The Leftovers where it, you can treat the show as a puzzle that there might be little Easter eggs here and there, references to certain things. There's this episode, there's this issue of National Geographic, an actual issue of National Geographic magazine. And if you look at it, there's this reference to Cairo that you hear in the radio. And if you were to actually grab the magazine in, in our life, you could find there's an article about Cairo. So people are starting to think, oh my gosh, are there clues for the show inside this issue of National Geographic? So people, when the show is off the air, are like, trying to come up with the explanations and trying to solve the puzzle before the show moves forward. I think was just a big F you <laughs> in, in a funny, but also kind of serious way from Damon Lindelof. I mean, I don't know, maybe he, he, yeah. he didn't originate those ideas. I feel we found at the end of the show to the extent it was even real things that they're really trying to push. I always thought in the whole series, the whole point of the show was that the characters would go out of their way, sometimes out of their minds, to find meaning in things that didn't actually have the meaning that they thought it would have or the, the consequential nature of whatever happened to Car Wreck or the departure. Uh, and so, I don't know, it, it was when those things happened where I go, oh, maybe this is the beginning of something that's important. I feel like in the end it was Damon Lindelof being like, yeah, you hated my lost finale. <laughs> I put, I, you know, I threw you off on all these like chases. And in the end, it happened. And it didn't matter. The thing that I love about it was the fact that it, Damon Lindelof and the writers of the show are telling a story about people who look for meaning in a situation where it doesn't necessarily have to have any meaning. And they come up with all these explanations and it makes sense. It's like a conspiracy theory. And there are enough Easter eggs in the show where people watching the show do the exact same thing. And maybe they do realize it and it's just kind of fun or maybe they don't realize it that they're doing the exact same thing that the show is kind of pointing out. Isn't this kind of odd? Exactly. Exactly. Meta-commentary on meta-commentary on top of meta-commentary about Lost. Ugh. Anyways, this, this scene with Mark Lynn Baker is pretty interesting. He goes through the different types of radiation, gamma, alpha, beta, neutron, and then the show kind of invents this thing, this, uh, this LADR, low-amplitude Denziger radiation. Um, and the fun thing about, about Denziger in the show, this is just a little side thing, is he's actually mentioned in the background a couple of times in the pilot episode of The Leftovers. He is on the background testifying on to Congress on C-SPAN about the fact that he's a scientist and people are saying that people disappearing was a miracle, but I don't think it's a miracle. Science has an explanation, but we don't know what it is yet. Uh, and there's a whole scene about how the fact that it's not a miracle, this isn't God's hand being played here, quote, God sat this one out. Uh, I didn't realize that. I remember that scene, the the background kind of testimony playing on TVs, but I didn't realize that, that was the, the person. That was Denziger. So he built the device and then also, I think, went through the device. But let's let's move next to this entire scene with the French nuclear submarine. There are submarines that launch, submarine-launched ballistic missiles that have nuclear warheads on them. Those tend to be called boomers in the parlance of our times, uh, in the Navy parlance. And then there are attack submarines. And those are ones that may have a nuclear-fueled reactor that powers the submarine, but they don't launch nuclear weapons. They launch 
torpedoes. They go after other submarines or, or naval ships of the enemy, or they support the boomer submarines. But those are kind of a fun distinction that's important here. Uh, but this one in in the show, I think it's cool because there are some things that are silly about the visuals. The idea that the submarine, when we first see it, you hear these loud pinging noises, which is just like a poetic thing that writers will do in shows with submarines where you see the outside of a submarine and you can hear the sonar pinging because if you think about it submarines are supposed to run quiet and if you hear these loud pinging noises outside of a submarine they're not being very quiet and they're kind of defeating the purpose of being a submarine but it's a signal to the audience hey this is a submarine it's a shortcut exactly and another shortcut is is that you see in this advanced submarine there's two propellers on either side on the back that are propelling it forward. I think there's actually three in the one we see in the show. Those are like old models of submarines. Ones that that are in the current French fleet only have one propeller that's right in the center. They have fins on the side that are used to help steer, but the actual propeller is just one in the middle. So that's not really that important. But I thought that was a cool, it was a visual shortcut to telling people this is a submarine. And some of the things in the scene are, are pretty spot on, kind of. There's uh, the launching device in the submarine isn't like a button on a console or a key that gets turned like it is in a, a, a silo that does land-based missiles. They show a bit of a joystick because in the U.S. and French and, and, and British naval forces, it is like, a, like an actual trigger. Um, it's actually based off of a Colt 45 handgun, that same grip. It's modeled off of that. It's not a button that you put on the very top like they do in the show, where, you know, there's like that little red button that the sailor pushes, but it's actually a trigger with a trigger guard on the front of it. And I'll, I'll include pictures in our show notes about that. So I thought that was kind of a cool a cool addition to the show, but it's visually it makes sense that why a showrunner in The Leftovers would want to have a red button, because a trigger is not as obvious that it's being pulled. It doesn't look as cool as a button where you can push the top of it like a video game. It's also wired. It's not a, I think in the show it looked like it was like a wireless thing, like a Wii remote kind of deal. Uh, those those ones that they pull out are, are actually wired, not, you want to make sure the batteries don't run out on your nuclear trigger. Hopefully they're rechargeable. Exactly. Uh, one little fun thing is in the U.S. and the British uh, submarines, which are very similar, they have the same missile system, the Trident missile system, because we share those things with the U.S. and, the, and the, between the U.S. And, and Britain, but the the joystick is red, the one that can actually fire the missiles. The training joysticks that they use during training missions is black, so you know if you're holding the red one, uh, don't push that button. That's the big one. The black one is the one that's the the training mission. Also, just helpful advice to know in the future. The reason why it's a trigger instead of a button on a nuclear submarine is unlike when it's land-based systems that don't really have a lot of jostling. If you're in a submarine, you might be moving a little bit. And the fact that this thing is stored inside of a safe, a button would be too easy to push. So that's why it's a trigger with a trigger guard. Even though I really like this show and I thought that whole scene was beautiful, it does get kind of odd. They do get the submarine uniforms right. Like the fact that they it's a, the uniform with the blue uniform with the stripe and it says Marine Nationale on the back. Like That's a what those uniforms look like, but that's kind of where it stops. If you're watching this and you think, oh, that's how this happens, there's a few things to, to keep in mind. The fact that the submarine just launches its, its weapons wherever it is, submarines need to be at a certain depth 
to fire their missiles. They can't fire them from where they normally are, are cruising, trying to hide. They have to rise to firing depth before they do it. And it's not clear to me that actually happens. No targeting information is entered. Sometimes these submarines and missiles in the U.S. fleet, because the French don't have land-based missiles anymore. But if you think about that, having a predetermined target means if there's some kind of accident that launches the weapon, they, they predetermined target is usually in the ocean. It's not a city or somewhere where something someone can get hurt. You have to insert where you want the missiles to go, because it's a submarine. It depends where the submarine is at even given point, where what its target is going to be, because it may be out of range. So maybe, 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 maybe this person entered the targeting information before this scene started, but uh, I'm just confused by that. But that's not important for the, the point of the show, but I think that's something that really irritated me. He just pushed a button and it went exactly where he wanted it to go to. Well, like clarifying question, though, I guess we'd have to go back to the tape. So I guess I interpreted that as he detonated it inside the submarine. Oh, I think it was a... And it was, and it was near... They were near the island. I think it launched and went somewhere because it looked like it hit an island. It, they could have been near the island and it well, hit the island, right? I mean... Let's talk about... I was going to save this for later, but let's let's talk really quickly why this person, this sailor, decided to launch a right. weapon. It turns out, we find out in like several episodes later, the rumor is, and I think this is what they talk about in the show, he thinks there is a seven-headed monster in an egg in a volcano on an island that is going to be born soon and will destroy the world, just like Revelations. And I, we talked earlier about this this prayer that someone says in French at the beginning over the opening credits, uh, and someone translated this. Of course they did. I'm actually going to lean on you later on, Joel, because I think you have uh, an ability to actually read French, at least say the French things correctly, uh, with the right... In my Pepe Le Pew uh, French accent. Right, and I, I, I can't even do that. Uh, but here's, I'll just say really quickly, here's, it's cause, because it's actually really spooky. I am the only hope, the last offense of a species about to go extinct. The warlocks warned us. These clairvoyant sages saw the truth. They said the creatures would come seven years after the first ones were taken, seven years after the departure. We were blind of the gods. We are now on the edge of the ravine, on the edge of destruction. When this monster is born, we are done for. Because this monster will be born to end us. Seven heads. Seven flaming mounts. We have one last hope. The egg. From the warlock maps I found it. Hidden in a nest in a volcano in the sea. Thank God for the technology. The nuclear weapon. To break the fragile shell and melt the demons inside. God. May this missile fly straight and find the nest in the volcano. And hopefully this egg would not have hatched yet. And let it destroy it before it destroys the world. That's pretty intense. Poetry. What is that, Byron? Shelley? I think it's Joyce. James Joyce. <laughs> oh, Joyce? Okay. Actually, it looks like it's from the book of Revelations. Chapter 13, verse 1. In the show, there's multiple references to the fact that people have just decided seven years after the departure, something else is going to happen. That's when the next stage of this rapture-like sequence is going to take place. One of our main characters, Matt, uh, keeps saying that. Uh, and... He just draws from the Bible the fact to keep making references to seven years this, seven years that. This must be the explanation when the world's going to end. Although, can I, can I just note, I, I thought one of the funniest parts of that whole like 
plot tangent was uh, you hear about this because Nora is talking about it in this van with uh-huh. Matt and, and uh, Lori. And she's like, oh, can you believe like this is why he apparently did it? And Matt then tries to kind of <laughs> yeah. school them on revelation. And that's so ridiculous. It was a dream. It wasn't intended for to be taken literally. And then he gets this kind of reaction of like, really? After all you've been doing, you're really going to kind of lecture anyone on, you know, at what point or to what extent you're supposed to take something literally versus figuratively versus, you know, something else. The perfect example of someone saying what they're doing, even though it's almost identical to what I'm doing, they're crazy, but I'm not crazy. Right. The whole thing is to kind of fray the, the boundaries of what's sane belief and faith and what's crazy belief and faith. Well, I'll tell you what's crazy. The depiction of command and control launching procedures in this episode. They incorporate the idea of what we call the two-man rule, which is it takes two people with two keys or two launched commands or separate forms of authority that they both need to agree at the exact same time to do a launch. And because if one person does it by themselves, you have a better chance of it just happening on the whims of someone who has a bad day or goes sane. But if there's two people, it's harder to do a conspiracy with two people. We as, as audience members, we're, we're accustomed to this. You know, war games, it starts with two people turning the key or one not agreeing to it at the exact same time. Or in, in Batman versus Superman, we see two people turn the key at the exact same time and that launches the nuclear weapon at Superman. Like we see that over and over again. In Mission Impossible 4, Ghost Protocol, we see on the Russian submarine, two people turn a key at the exact same time. Like, they need to do that. We know that that's associated with nuclear stuff. But on submarines, this isn't a thing. There aren't two people that need to turn a key to open anything to get get to the trigger. It's actually a little bit different. And this is really drawn from the, the French example is more secret and classified. We have a lot of experiences of how the U.S. and the, and the, and the U.K. do it. And it's probably very similar from all the references that I've seen uh, to the French Navy. In the U.K., for example... Only two people on the submarine have access to the safe. It's a combination lock, like we see at the beginning of this Leftovers episode, that holds the nuclear trigger to launch the weapons. But it's not just the trigger that needs to be pulled. There has to be other things. For example, the French president has to send a launch order out and authorize the launch. And then there's a series of codes and authentications that need to take place. And then they enter that information, the targeting sequences. Then... The two people, which is the lieutenant commander and their deputy, have access to the safe holding the trigger. And I also don't understand why this random guy who gets naked and runs down and, and, and closes the door and pulls the keys, why does he have access to a launch key? He just seemed like a regular shipman. He wasn't wearing a white uniform that would indicate that he was an officer or one of the senior commands. And then literally the first person that runs to him is also the other guy who has the key instead of anyone else. That seemed more odd than the the initial guy who sets off the bomb having the key. Because I was thinking, okay, maybe for whatever reason he is high enough ranked that he does have that key. But I thought it seemed like the guy with the second key was just like this military police type person who's, or security guy who's running like, what's, what's all that noise? What's the commotion? He created the noise to kind of attract the guy over, and then he kind of hits him and takes the key. It actually made me think of Hunt Fred October, where it's like, oh, the cook? The cook is the KGB guy? Yeah. And it's kind of a random... 
But hey, you know, you need a shortcut. So I could, this almost envisions a world where everyone on that submarine has a key, and if any two of them decide at any point to launch a weapon, they just they just can do it. There's things that we do to prevent that from happening, and you can make a case why you don't think any of this stuff are, are actually good procedures. But the French nuclear forces have electronic locks on their weapons, similar to in the U.S., which are called permissive action links or PALs, that require an electronic code or sequence, some kind of you know quote-unquote key that's sent by the French president through the military staff that unlocks the weapon. The entire French system, it's similar to the British example, where they're, they don't launch under expectation of attack. Like their whole system, because of submarines, they believe they can wait a little while before they have to launch their missiles. They're not under the threat of having their weapons destroyed before they have a chance to use them. So they're just a different pacing that's involved. But the fact that that one signal that gets sent with the code can both unlock and authorize a launch. Uh, there's no nuclear football in France. There's a secure communication system that allows people to contact the president and for the president to chat with people in, in, out in the field, but there's not one dedicated to a nuclear attack authorization. But I think the craziest thing about this whole thing is the fact that this submarine officer thought that the way to destroy like a Godzilla-like creature was with a nuclear bomb. It doesn't work like that. Godzilla was created with radiation and nuclear testing. You can't kill Godzilla with a nuclear bomb. It only makes him stronger. That's the part that doesn't make any sense to me. So wait, you're not only being super critical about the technology itself that does exist, you're also now being super critical about his delusions yes. of the fictitious monster. His craziness right. is crazy. You can't kill Godzilla with a nuclear bomb. He is a walking nuclear bomb. All right. All right. I think here would be also kind of interesting to talk very briefly about the French nuclear fleet and its system of, of command and control and its doctrine of use and what it thinks its nuclear weapons are used for. Because it's a little different than the rest of the world. The French nuclear profile, they maintain up to 300 total warheads, and this is both operational weapons and those that are stored away from their delivery systems, and they deploy submarine-launched ballistic missiles, SLBMs. The most they've ever had, 1991, 1992, their peak was 538 warheads. That sounds like a lot, but compared to the rest of the world during the Cold War, the U.S. and Russia, very low. We had tens of thousands of weapons. They, at the most, ever had 538, but they're still in the top four uh, in terms of the total number of warheads. They're all pretty much deployed on either four nuclear submarines or they're on fighter jets. The, the French currently have four of these nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines. Each of their submarines have 16 submarine-launched ballistic missiles that either have an older version of these weapons, uh, missiles which are called the M45s, or the more advanced ones, which they're switching to entirely by 2020, which are called the M51s. And these are, have warheads on them that I think, Joel, I don't know if, if you would love to pronounce this for me, uh, but the, the, the abbreviation is TNO. Tête Nucléaire Oceanique. <laughs> Or ocean nuclear warhead. Very distinct. I could go, re I could go really peppy with you. Get nuclear oceanique. Hopefully our French listeners have already unsubscribed. I sincerely apologize to the <laughs> French language and people. Francophone culture, I should say. Yeah. Well, let's, let's compliment their weapons. Uh, their SLBMs can carry four to six multiple independently targeted reentry vehicles or MIRVs. Much like our submarines in the United States, each of their missiles can carry multiple warheads that can hit different targets. So they fire one missile up inside space, their individual warheads separate, 
and then within a kind of defined limited area, they can hit multiple targets. You know, a city here, a city there, bombing installation over there. The range of the more modern weapon, the M51 missile, has a range of 6,000 kilometers, which can hit a lot of targets. And the size of each of these warheads, around 100 uh, kilotons. For comparison, the bomb dropped in Hiroshima uh, was under 20. It's closer to, you know, 13 kilotons. Way, way bigger than the bomb that was used against Hiroshima, and even the one against uh, Nagasaki, which is closer to 20. French law determines and tells the French Navy how many submarines they can have uh, out at any given time. Uh, it says at least one of those four submarines must always be on active patrol. And while it's on active patrol, the idea is they're hidden. They're underwater. We, they, the enemy doesn't know where they are, so you can't attack them. They're survivable in that sense. If they, They're the ultimate retaliation if the French homeland or NATO... Uh, was attacked. One of the interesting thing is, is they only have enough warheads for three of those four submarines. So one of them is always in overhaul. The submarine usually is considered to be an overhaul, uh, being, you know, maintenance being done at any particular time. So they only ever bought the number of warheads they needed to put onto three at any given time. So when one of them comes into the the docks for repair, they switch out the warheads and missiles and move them over to the other one. I think it's kind of an interesting cost effectiveness. They didn't buy more than they needed. Uh, they had bought just the amount that they needed in any given time. And this is fewer than the number that they had in 1992 when they had six planned submarines. So they went from six to four. The latest submarine that they just launched in 2010, uh, its, its ship name is Le Terrible which is a great name for a nuclear submarine. The other subs that are currently in, in service, I'm going to let Joel say. Le Triomphant, Le Temeraire, and Le Vigilant. Great names for submarines. <laughs> for my best college French. <laughs> Still leaning heavily on Pepe Le Pew. It's pretty good. This is the second generation of French nuclear submarines, and the next planned wave of submarines is, is designated for 2035. So the ones they have now, uh, they'll be there for a little while. And in terms of the French, how they think about nuclear weapons and what their, the purpose of the nuclear weapons are in their defense strategy, the, the joke in the, the nuclear policy community is that North Korea would be more likely to give up its nuclear weapons first than France because France considers their nuclear weapons to be a, a source of national pride, a source of legitimacy as a world power, and the final guarantee of sovereignty and independence, which allows them to, for many, many years, remain outside of the normal structure of NATO. Even though they're part of Europe, they were outside of NATO until until kind of fairly recently. And it's also a little bit unclear what they think nuclear weapons would be used for. In the United States, we, we say, and at least under the Obama administration, that the purpose of nuclear weapons is mostly to defend against nuclear attacks. It's retaliation, it's to prevent that from happening. Or an overwhelming near extinction event on conventional scale with the United States, or in response to some kind of biological weapon that would have the potential of destroying the entire population of the United States. Something like that. No longer really about chemical weapons when we used to say, uh, maybe it could be used against chemical and biological. But the French, they don't say that the sole purpose of nuclear weapons is to defend against other uh, nuclear weapons, they say, includes the free exercise of sovereignty and integrity of national and overseas territories, including the potential interest of the United Kingdom and its other uh, close allies. A way to describe this means that the former French president Sarkozy, 2008, stated that our nuclear deterrent protect, protects us against any aggression against our vital interest emanating from a state, wherever that may come from and whatever form it may take place, which means 
It's kind of unclear, would they use nuclear weapons against conventional attack? The French consider their nuclear weapons to be a very essential part of their overall defense strategy. It's kind of interesting in the, in the leftovers episode that the bomb goes off on this uninhabited island in the South Pacific because the French used to test their weapons at the Pacific Testing Center in the South Pacific in this like beautiful area they used to test their bombs. And I know in a couple of our previous episodes, we like to mock uh, some former presidents in the United States that left behind their nuclear codes. Uh, one time, Carter, President Carter left it in a suit for, that was left in the dry cleaning. Uh, and these are the nuclear codes that are called the biscuit, which is usually kept in the coat pocket of someone's jacket. It's about the size of your cell phone these days, like an iPhone 7 Plus. In May 1981, the newly elected French president, Francois uh, Mitterrand, left the French nuclear codes at home in the pocket of his suit. It seems like it's something that's a common occurrence. When you print these things out, you're eventually going to lose them somewhere. So that's the French nuclear system. That's that whole scene uh, on the submarine, which I thought was really a great piece of art, but also caused me to rant a little bit. Uh, but Joel, why don't we move on to this other big scene, the one... Well, I was reading one article and they referred to it as the Death Realm. Death Realm, okay. As a quick recap, uh, Kevin in this world is the president. He's got a great beard. He envisions himself as someone who is told that the that Ukrainian separatists have seized control of a Russian nuclear submarine that's ready to launch in one hour. The Secretary of Defense, who is our friend Patty, says that we need to launch first... And basically the whole thing is a ruse. And their whole plan was if they start World War III by nuking Russia, will lead to the destruction of the world when Russia retaliates like we see in the Terminator franchise. Patty really wants him to go from DEFCON 3 to DEFCON 1. Uh, DEFCON being the defense condition readiness state. Uh, when you're at DEFCON 1, that means <laughs> war is happening. It's, it's, the code name for that is a cocked pistol, meaning we're about to launch, we're about to fire our weapons. But before she can launch the weapons, there's this really funny scene throughout the entirety of this this really tense episode. I love how much there's like a lot of black comedy in this scene where the vice president comes in. And again, the vice president is a character that we who died and we know from, from before. She says, Mr. President, you can't launch nuclear weapons because you have to follow the Fisher Protocols. I think Kevin says, you know about the Fisher Protocols? And she goes, uh, yeah, I, I know about the Fisher Protocols. I'm the vice president. And he does that little fun thing you do when you don't really remember what hat something is or you don't know, and you try, but you want the other person to tell you, and you say, prove it. Why don't you tell me what the Fisher Protocols are? I know what they are, but you don't know what they are. Can you just tell me what they are? I want you to tell me if you know. Uh, and she says, oh, yeah, the Fisher Protocols are a, quote, ethical deterrent, and the only way that you can launch weapons is you need to get a volunteer who has volunteered to have the launch key put into their body that you would need to rip out to get the launch key, and that person's not here. And then it turns out, Patty says, wink, wink, that person's about to enter the east side of the facility in 15 minutes. Then it starts to get a little crazy from there. Um, but ultimately, here's the, the dialogue that initiates the sequence here. Patty Levin says into the nuclear football, like it's just listening for, for these commands to be placed. I wasn't sure, Joel, maybe you can give me some clarification here. Is she talking to someone? through the nuclear football, or is it like a robot computer that she's talking to that just automatically follows her voice commands, like a like a nuclear Siri? Well, remember, there is a microphone, because that, you know, she pushes it over to him to put it up to DEFCON 1, so... But is it I going, is it going to that. someone, or...? I guess it could be a computer thing. I mean, I, when I saw it, I, I saw it as 
they're in communication with various military installations and he's you know alerting the government as a whole that we're going to defcon one or whatever um we are in the death realm tim so. yeah i can't get too nitpicky i just think it would be funny if it was a microphone that was just constantly listening because it she's not like she pushes a button or anything she just kind of talks into the microphone and that there's someone on the other end of that that's in the national command authority that's just listening to this whole scene about they're talking about the, his diary that he kept in a romantic novel that the two of them have written and the whole their whole plan about starting world war three like if there's just some guy listening that says oh boy this is this is intense sitting in the other room just being like i don't know what's going on here's what patty says she says into the microphone i patricia levin in my capacity as Secretary of Defense, hereby invoke the Fisher Protocol, overriding the heart deterrent. Pursuant to the National Command Authority granted by Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, the President shall make an incision two inches below the sternum of the volunteer, whereby the President, gaining access from beneath the ribcage, shall manually extract the launch key from behind the left atrium. And she says that the volunteer will get a Congressional Medal of Honor if Congress will exist after the bombs drop. And then she says, you know, and they will not. And then the president gets the launch key. So the president does this. President Kevin goes through the whole sequence and rips out the key, turns the key, the bombs go off. That's that, that's that particular scene. It's, a, it's pretty intense. It's, it's kind of funny because they also, while he's ripping open the person who's a, its identical twin brother, uh, who also in the course of this sh- episode is supposed to represent Kevin's other side, his side that is seeking freedom, and he has to get the key away from that person. It's a whole bunch of symbolism that we'll talk a little bit about later. There's um, a Beach Boy song, Only God Only Knows, playing on top of that, and there's lines like, God only knows what I would be without you, uh, which normally is a sad thing of, oh, I don't know what I would be like without you. And here it's, if I can get rid of you, and if I can get rid of this world, maybe I can move on with my life. So that's the scene. Let's get super critical about it. So one of the things I love about this whole sequence is if you believe that it's a near-death experience, if it's just in his head, something like that, it's just like Kevin reliving in person all of these movies that he's seen. Maybe he's seen Doctor Strange Love. Maybe he's watched a few of the movies that we covered on the podcast, and he, but he only kind of slightly remembers it, and he's pulling together all of these different things all at the same time. He knows there's a nuclear football, that's what it's called, and there's like DEFCON levels, but he can't remember if that if one is better than five, if he doesn't exactly remember. He knows there's keys. He Maybe he listened to a podcast, which I'll mention later on, about the Fisher Protocol, and maybe he, he applied that to it. Like all these things, it makes sense, and he's having like a weird fever dream, but all of these different factors all being put into the same thing. So you don't think he dies in all these situations? I'll, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll save that for the parking lot discussion. I don't think he does. I think he's, it's a near death experience. In, in, in any of the situations? Right. I mean, define death, but he doesn't die and then come back to life. He dies in the sense of someone who maybe got shocked by uh, electricity and their heart stops and they start to go, but then they come back and are brought back with like electric shock. That's my sense of it. Uh, but we'll get okay. to that in a little bit. Hard not to mention the fact that they're in this silly nuclear bunker which is just in the middle of this town in Australia that he happens to be in that has like a center for command and control and there's like a situation room and kind of uh, nuclear blast doors, but not really because they look like they're like two inches thick and they're just like down the hall from these like long steps. Not really important. It's kind of a fun thing because it is a dream. They have the nuclear football 
and I'm glad they talk about that. It looks right from the outside, which is basically a steel case with a leather cover on top of it. And I think they removed the cover, uh, which that was kind of interesting, and that people realize that it's not just like the the suitcase that we see in G.I. Joe 2, where it looks like this fancy computer set up with a Cobra symbol on the outside. It's like a 40-pound case um, that's a, basically a communication system, but it's covered with this nice uh, leather outside. But let's talk about the Fisher Protocol. Because I was doing, I was reading a lot about people's response to this episode, and we're thinking, wow, this is only something that leftovers could create. It's a kind of an odd idea, and is this, is this a real thing? And it is. I was loving while watching this episode. I think I paused it a couple times, turning to my wife, who just wanted to watch the episode, and I kept saying, they're talking about Roger Fisher. They're talking about his idea, because there was a... We had just been talking about this in the policy community fairly recently because a couple of years ago there was a uh, a Radio Labs podcast on buttons that you push that people think are buttons that you push but aren't really buttons that you push. It's this weird thing of like it's how you maybe misremember things um, but that's not actually how they're done. And they talk about Roger Fisher's idea. Roger Fisher is a law professor at Harvard who passed away in 2012. Uh, but for decades before that, he was known as one of the world's best experts on negotiation theory, how to uh, negotiate on what he calls common interest. How do you find what both sides are interested in and how do you come up with common solutions? So you know how uh, President Trump has written Art of the Deal? Well, Roger Fisher has written the book Getting to Yes, uh, which I know a lot of people have read. I actually read that book as part of a course in my graduate degree program uh, on international negotiation theory. It was really cool to see uh, his name come up. He served in, in World War II as, a, I think it was a reconnaissance officer, and saw a lot of his friends uh, die in action. And he became interested in how people settle differences and how do they come up with, when, when an agreement takes place and is a salute, you know, a negotiated agreement, how, how does that, what was the things that led to the success are there common factors involved in that, or is it completely random? So he, as part of this as Harvard program on negotiation, interviewed hundreds of people who were big-name negotiators, people like Colin Powell, uh, Condoleezza Rice, a uh, bunch of different people, business community, uh, international affairs, and tried to find out what were common things across. Um, he also was involved in international negotiations for the U.S. federal government, and he was part of the people that negotiated the release of the hostages in Iran in the, in the early 1980s, uh, as well as uh, he was involved in several Middle East peace talks that resulted in, in some sort of an agreement. And But most relevant to season three of The Leftovers, he wrote an article in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. Uh, and we've talked about them before. They're the ones that keep the, the doomsday clock that counts uh, the closer it gets to midnight. And that's when nuclear war or the end of the world is going to take place. Um, it's also a place where I published a couple articles on pop culture and nuclear weapons. Uh, he wrote an article in 1981 called Preventing Nuclear War, where he tried to solve what he saw as the human element of starting a nuclear war. Instead of focusing on the weapons themselves, defense systems, he thought the biggest problem that we could deal with was the human element. He thought that leaders who make the decision to use nuclear weapons, whether it's the U.S. president or the Soviet premier, those leaders do so without having any personal stake in the game. They have a psychological distance from the consequences. They're likely to be put into a bunker. They're probably in a bunker uh, kind of like in the movie Failsafe. Do you remember when we covered that one, Joel? Where the president's like in this bunker that's air-conditioned by himself and this other guy who's like a translator. They'll just be separated from everything. And it's not really 
he doesn't the president might not understand or have a sense of exactly what's happening and what the consequences of pushing a button that would launch a nuclear war would be. That's what Roger Fisher was worried about. The president and or their family would probably survive uh, in, in a bunker or somewhere else. Uh, and this is what we would call a classic moral hazard situation. This is where decision makers stand to benefit from an action, but they have no consequences. It's like gambling with someone else's money. And it's also psychologically numbing if you think about it, because they'll tell you statistics when you're the president. Oh, if you launch this attack, you know, this many people will die. And it's like millions and billions of people that could potentially lose their lives. And at a certain point, it, it becomes numbing. It's no longer, it no longer is a relevant idea. It's kind of like when you think that the loss of one person that you may know about is a tragedy, but the loss of a million people is, is a statistic. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around that particular idea. My wife mentioned that it's similar to how charities often focus on an individual person's story as opposed to the wider statistics of a, of a disease or something that, that to, for you to donate money because you can attach yourself and, and you can feel uh, more about an individual person. That's where Roger Fisher's idea comes from. And this is how he talks about it. There is a young man who accompanies the president. This young man has a black attache case which contains the codes that are needed to fire nuclear weapons. I can see the president at a staff meeting considering a nuclear war as an abstract concept. He might conclude, quote, On PSYOP Plan 1, the decision is affirmative. Communicate with the Alpha Line XYZ. Such jargon holds what is involved at a distance. My suggestion is quite simple. Put that needed code in a little capsule, and then implant that capsule right next to the heart of a volunteer. The volunteer could carry with him a big, heavy butcher knife. If the president ever needed to fire nuclear weapons, the only way he could do so would be for him to first, with his own bare hands, kill one human being. The president says, George, I'm so sorry, but millions of people must die. And then he looks at that person in the eye and realizes what death is, what an innocent death is, blood on the White House carpet. It's reality brought home. Uh, and you may think, what would be people's reaction in the Pentagon, for example, to this idea? And he said, when I suggested this to friends in the Pentagon, they said, my God, that's terrible. Having to kill someone would distort the president's judgment. He might never push the button, uh, which I, I would say was kind of the point uh, of this particular thought exercise. So, Joel, I, was, I wanted to ask you, I've talked for a little bit here. Have you ever heard of this idea before, before this particular episode? Did you think it was a real thing or did you just think it was a creation of the show. I had not heard of it before the episode when they started talking about it. It seemed a little outlandish. I guess part of me could have seen it being somehow attached to some real theory, but I, I guess I was leaning more because it is the death realm and a lot of it is this dark humor. I kind of attributed to, you know, them coming up with it, it kind of reminded me of the, uh, the, the conversation that Nora has where they say, you know, there are two, what is it, two babies, and you got to kill one. One of them will cure cancer, but only if you kill the other. So I, I kind of, like, hearkened back to that, so I thought maybe that was them riffing off of that kind of concept of you got to kill one person to save a lot of other lives, um, or in this case, take a lot of lives. But I, I didn't know the, the backstory of it. My guess is most people would consider it more of a, an outlandish, like, that can't be a real thing, can it? Do you think that this idea would actually work for its given goal. I guess I can see the concern there. I mean, I don't have any direct contact to any of this, obviously, but 
I don't know, some of the statements that I've heard from presidents over the years about, you know, the weight of the office and, and things like that. I don't know. I guess I'm more inclined, at least today, to feel like the human toll of individual decisions are a little more available to a president. Maybe that's just the function of technology being a little more advanced, where, you know, you can see the the airstrike as it occurs in HD drones. I think it's fitting that it came out of uh, kind of an academic or theoretical exercise. I think in practice, though, I don't know. If you're literally sitting there thinking about, okay, I have to kill millions of people. I don't know if the fact that I have to kill one more person to get to that. I don't know. It's hard for me to think that the weight of it, when even though it may be hard for them to wrap their mind around what is killing 10 million people versus 1 million versus one person mean, I could see that, like the emotional depth of it would be hard, but I still feel like the the emotional weight of it, even if there wouldn't be much texture to that feeling or specificity to that feeling, I feel like you'd still have the weight of the decision on your shoulders. People have debated about whether or not this is sound policy, and I, I, I think that it's much more of a thought exercise. It's not really something that you could institute. Because I think you're right. If a president has made the decision that this needs to happen, probably wouldn't mind so much having to do that very quickly to get at an individual person. If they think you know it's gonna, if it's gonna save lives, if we do a first strike, then maybe this is like really more of a thing. If you wanted to just start a war and it wasn't under a circumstance of oh we're already under attack or we think they're about to attack us, so we need to strike first. It seems like if you've already made that decision, you'd be willing to go through with that. Other factor is. The president probably could just as easily get someone else to do the killing for them. The other tricky thing in terms of just logistics with this is if they're launching in in response to an attack, the launch window is very, very short. Usually you think if there's weapons that are launched from, let's say, Russia, the homeland of Russia, it take about 30 minutes, we'll detect them, and then we'll really have about 15 minutes before the president has to order a launch and those weapons need to get out. And they take four minutes once the decision happens for them to go to go out. The president needs to make a decision about how to respond. So if you tell a president we're under attack and you need to fire our weapons back, they would probably say, can you confirm it? So you have to confirm that this is actually what's taking place. Then the president needs to be briefed on what the response could be. And some presidents in t over the course of our, our, our history in America have gotten really into the weeds. Like President Carter was super interested in the PSYOP plan, the single integrated operating plan that was like the menu, all the different ways our nuclear weapons could be used. He memorized it. Other presidents like Ronald Reagan, only one time was ever really briefed on how to use the nuclear football and what the procedures would be. He was involved in one exercise. According to some reports that I've seen, he was very disengaged from the whole thing. He was basically like acting kind of like an actor saying, all right, what do I do next? What's the next thing I need to do? As opposed to pushing people on on the decision process and kind of the things he would need to know. The time window that a president would have and the individual uh, characteristics of that president would make this kind of Fisher protocol set up very, very complicated and would likely result in the president just saying, whatever, kill this guy, take care of it. But I think the important thing too is that this is not really a pr it meant to be a practical idea. It's It seemed like it's more about a thought exercise because it's also part of Roger Fisher's general understanding. He wasn't a pro-nuclear person. He wasn't trying to come up with some great arrangement to make deterrence work. He was coming up with an idea that would show people that nuclear weapons and nuclear war is a bad idea. But 
I think this is a it's a fascinating idea, and I'm just amazed that it showed up on the leftovers. It was a big surprise. That show continued to surprise me. But there's also other ideas that are similar that I want to run through. Two of them that the leftovers could have also integrated into their their show. One of them came from Owen Chamberlain, who is a physicist and a Nobel Prize winner. He suggested in a 1980s letter to the president of the Federation of American Scientists that there should be some kind of an arrangement with human hostages where each leader of the various countries with nuclear weapons should have some of their family members living in other countries where nuclear bombs may go off. So that prevents the president or leaders from thinking, oh, well, a nuclear war won't affect my family. Kind of similar to marriage alliances and fostering of children that you see in Game of Thrones, where you foster the children of your enemy so that if they ever fought against you, you could just take off the children's head. It's kind of similar to that, but uh, but here's the, here's the quote in the letter I think is interesting. The 200 most important political and military persons in each superpower should be required to provide one family member who would act as a hostage by living inside the other superpower. It has the idea of potentially putting the world in a much different frame of mind. It might make nuclear war seem out of the question to all. The hostages, maybe one can find a better word than hostages, would be children or grandchildren or perhaps nieces and nephews of those leaders. Uh, While I think this sounds kind of cruel and odd, if you think about it, it is the reality of deterrence. Uh, This is an idea that Alex Wellerston, who we talked about earlier, uh, he's the guy who runs NukeMap, whole nations already in the real world are essentially hostages to nuclear attack when countries threaten each other with nuclear weapons. And this just basically forces those leaders to understand that the reality of deterrence is real and that these hostages are a real thing and it makes it explicit and and unignorable for the leaders themselves. So yeah, that's another way to create some kind of moral hazard solution. Uh, But what I don't know, Joel, what do you think about this? Well, it does take me back to our fail-safe discussion where you had the president trying to at least impress upon the the Russians or the Soviets that they should scale back there or they should not take the the nuclear attack as like a a broader attack on the Soviet Union that would cause a a massive retaliation. Uh, And so, you know, he detonates a nuclear bomb in New York City, including, you know, some of, uh, you know, his wife and the, the pilot's wife. So, you know, it's, again, kind of putting the human face on it. How do you uh, distill a, you know, uh, a single act that could kill millions into a, a single individual? It's like Cloverfield when we, we like to bring up Cloverfield. Uh, again, kind of a Damon Lindelof connection in the sense that he wrote for Lost and Lost was created by J.J. Abrams and J.J. Abrams did Cloverfield. Um, now we're starting to get into leftovers territory of creating multiple connections where they don't probably exist. Um, but Cloverfield has this giant monster attacking New York City, but we really needed something that the individual characters that we follow deal with. So they have these like little parasite monsters that come off, and those are things that the actual our characters can fight with a with an axe and have a an individual consequence, uh, as opposed to just seeing this massive monster that they can't really comprehend or do anything individually. I don't know if that's a really an appropriate analogy, but I kind of see that as a another similar way that, that filmmakers bring this uh, global consequence or large consequence down to the individual level. And the last example here that I want to mention, and this is another interesting thing because it, re- it relates to submarines, is the idea is what's called in, in the United Kingdom's nuclear uh, doctrine, letters of last resort. Anytime there's a new prime minister in the United Kingdom, 
the one of the first acts that Prime Minister does is writes four identical letters to each of the submarine commanders that operate the submarines in the in the nuclear fleet, the nuclear ballistic submarines in the, in the British Navy. These letters tells them what to do in the event if the prime minister is killed in a nuclear first strike. Uh, gives them the name of the cabinet official that the prime minister will delegate the next round of launch authority because there isn't a vice president, so it designates a certain person who's which is secret, uh, but who who would be able to do that next round of launch? Or if that person's dead too, uh, it has instructions that differ depending on the prime minister uh, to the submarine captains about what they should do next. Some of the options could be launch all your missiles at Russia indiscriminately. Hold and wait for further decision. One of them could be stand down. Turns out it was a bluff. We're not really interested in killing more people in just an act of revenge. Like that was what some people have expected some of the letters to say. We won't actually know what those letters say because they remain unopened and sealed on the submarines in a safe. And when a new prime minister assumes power, they're burned and destroyed without actually reading them. So the only person who knows what they say are the prime ministers themselves. And these letters operate as a essentially what the last act of Her Majesty's government would be in the event of a nuclear attack. And the purpose behind these letters is not just as a deterrent function, you know, which certainly is what it is. It's trying to show uh, what the submarine captain should do in the event of the government being destroyed. But it also is one of the first things a prime minister will do to grapple with the responsibility, uh, the new responsibility of being in charge of nuclear weapons. What that entails, it really forces them to, to write down their thoughts. And it's somewhat similar to when you, U.S. presidents are president-elects before they take office, usually at the Blair House, which is a hotel near the White House that the most U.S. presidents-elects uh, will stay before they're inaugurated. That's where this briefing takes place, where the nuclear football is brought in. Uh, they say, here's the, what, it would, what it would be like. Here's how the launch procedure would work. So as soon as they're inaugurated, in case nothing happens, they have to go through this uh, procedure, this training exercise. And a lot of presidents will come out of that and say, that was the moment where they realized the gravity of the situation that they're about to enter into. The enormous power that they will now be forced to grapple with. I did not know that that protocol or process uh, existed. So it's interesting kind of seeing the different practices that have developed over time in different places. Not every country thinks the same way about nuclear weapons as the United States does at any given time, that Russia does at any given time. France has a different approach. That's why it's it's so important that you don't try to project our understanding of nuclear weapons and how we use them and what an attack might look like and how you would respond. Don't take that and just mirror it onto the other side because the other side might have an entirely different understanding of our deterrent stru structure you know, what we say publicly versus what we actually believe and what we'll do and how we'll respond. Those are different concepts to different people. And that's why it's so important that you have dialogues, even with your enemies, you talk through things. Let's move to our parking lot movie discussion. Let's talk a little bit about our reactions to this. I have a couple of questions that I, I want to ask before we get into like the themes of the show. 
I think one thing that we could talk about is why nuclear weapons? Damon Lindelof seems to come to this a lot as a trope in, in at least the two big shows that we know him for, Lost and in The Leftovers, right? Not just submarines, which also have a big role in some Lost plot lines throughout Lost, but also nuclear weapons, because there's a bomb in Lost that, that is a major plot point that we'll eventually cover uh, at a certain point. Maybe that'd be one that we can bring you back from, uh, from the departure uh, from the other side that we watched Lost together. But he seems to come to it a lot. And I think nuclear weapons, at least for me, serve as like a great metaphor for the reactions that the characters have to deal with for the departure. The, the departure is kind of like a nuclear bomb that gets dropped on Nora and Kevin's family, who are already going through some issues. You know, Nora was suspecting her husband of cheating on her, and at that particular time, even though she loved her children, she was frustrated by the kids yelling at the breakfast table, uh, and then all of a sudden you, you drop like the worst thing that can happen that you can possibly imagine on their lives, and it just devastates Kevin. When the departure happened, he was having an affair with someone else uh, that he just met at a bar, I think, and she disappeared right in the middle of this. And then all of a sudden, then his wife joins a cult. His wife was, this is, this is one of the darkest points of, of The Leftovers, the wife was, a, was pregnant with a, one of Kevin's child, and the child inside of her disappears and gets departed, and which screws her up. Their whole family gets dropped these metaphorical bombs on top of them, and they have to then basically pick up the pieces. And I think that this is the, probably the best way to demonstrate the impact of um, this kind of an event on their life. But maybe not. I don't, I don't know what you think about that, but it seems like nuclear weapons are always the thing in movies where if you have to ramp this up to 11, this is the, what you introduce into it. And even if it doesn't make sense why you have it, it's just the way to show that this is like the, the biggest thing that can happen to someone. My suspicion, and this is not based on anything, obviously, because, you know, why should I start doing that now? Um, so many episodes in. But, uh, you know, I thought to some extent he uses nukes because – or nukes have been popular because there's just, I don't know, a lot of – fascination around them you know there's this kind of scary regard for nuclear weapons it's not something we see often right so like most people alive today at no point did we really see nuclear weapons as kind of a standard thing but especially now we know nuclear weapons more for from their like tv and uh cinematic representations than what we've seen on test video at least of current tests because you know not really done as much it's a popular thing that mystifies people so when you're talking about science fiction and, and stuff like that that it's it's an easy go-to i mean I, I always thought that the reason why the nukes came up in the death realm was because you know they were trying to contrast the death realm which was surreal and you know like you said like a fever dream with kind of the stakes in the real world, quote-unquote real world, which were much more personal and um, first-person perspective, as opposed to this feel like wholly detached from what's going on in the, in the world, in the, the death realm, where he's just in this room and you have no idea what's going on. He doesn't know what's going on, but he's kind of playing along, trying to figure it out right. as he goes. I think Damon Lindelof, I mean, he cut his teeth as a writer on lots of different shows. I feel like he finds little things to put in his writer's toolbox that work and, and nuclear weapons, maybe for good and for bad, have been one of those things that have 
you know, stuck with him over the years. Well, it also makes sense to me that one of the major themes of that episode where Kevin is the president or, and the assassin is this world that he goes to, whether it's an actual place that he goes to, that he goes to it as an escape. That was one of Kevin's overriding character arcs. Because of all this stuff that ha- that takes place in his life, he might not be... You know, it's why he's having an affair in the in the first episode of the of the show. It's why he's every once in a while like looks for ways to escape responsibility, whether it be his his family or his job or the crazy world that he sees. He may be someone who has a little bit of a death wish, and he likes to go to this world because it creates this idea that Kevin has power in this other world. At some point, he's told that he's the most powerful person in the world, and when he's in this you know, alternate reality, he has that ability. He has the the agency that he may not have in his actual life, and it's an easy escape for him. And he's able to go to it when he's having these problems with Nora, and part of the thing that they try to do in the episode is destroy that world that he goes to. And that's why his twin, right before his twin dies, after he's had the key pulled out of his heart, he says, you know, blow it up. We screwed up with Nora. Take this, destroy this place, so we can never come back to it. And the best way to do that, what apparently is like thousands of nuclear weapons. All right, so let's let's get into our rating system here. This has been a longer episode than our normal mini-nukes, but I think it's because there, there's some fun stuff to talk about. Let's do our, our rating, which we normally do one out of five, uh, so it's consistent numerically, so we can judge uh, over the course of all of our episodes kind of how things relatively are weighed. But we like to tailor our rating system uh, to the individual content, so that we can actually have a a clear understanding of it. And I think what I'm going to do here is, one out of five, come back from the dead cards. You know, like you make a mistake in a video game, you hit try again, uh, you know, put a new quarter in the machine. This is kind of the same idea. If you only have one come back from the dead card, like Kevin does, um, it's good, but you might waste it. Maybe you'll not look both ways when you cross the street and you kind of waste it. But if you've got five of them, that's pretty cool because then you can pick up like extreme sports and have a couple chances to get good at it. How would you rate? How many come back from the dead cards would you give leftovers overall, not just season three? I don't know. I guess maybe I'd, I'd punch it up to four because it had the, you know, I, I don't want to say luck, but it had the foresight of knowing that it was going to end so they could like, uh, oh, you got to keep it going for another season or two. So they could kind of do it and then, you know, end it the way they wanted to. So I'd maybe give it a four. I mean, it, it was really good show. Um, I guess I can just think of shows that I like better. Hmm. So maybe it's not a, you know, like a technical or critical in the uh, uppercase C sense. It's just there are other shows that I like better. But I really like The Leftovers. Yeah, I mean, f- four is pretty high, I would say. I don't know where Perfect Strangers is in your rating system. Six. Six. <laughs> Definitely a six. Meepos, man. <laughs> uh, I would give this 4.5. And I'm surprised by this because after season one, I was like, this is really different. It's very interesting. There were at least like four episodes of season one that were just not very good to me. And the final, how it ended, just didn't really want me to watch season two and i was reluctant to actually watch because uh, i didn't i didn't know where this was going to go season two and season three when they are away from the book 
and they come up with their own ideas and they have a little bit different, more creative direction, which is awesome that HBO was able to give them that flexibility to be to be weird with some of the more crazy things that they do in season two and three. Uh, things like having a naked French guy running around in a submarine and launching a, an attack at some Godzilla egg creature uh, or Kevin becoming an assassin in this weird Death Realm universe. Like all of those things are really odd. And it, the show gets got better and better and better. And even over on the average, I'd say season two and three are so strong that season one, looking back on it, becomes a little bit better to me. Um, and I think Lost benefit from once it's over to be able to binge on a season. This episode wasn't so good, uh, or I have a mist- I have a, some sort of questions about what's going on. I could debate it over the course of a week and really get into the details and talk about it. Or... I can just watch the next episode. And I know this is how you and I would have conflicts about whether or not we wanted to mm-hmm. talk about an episode or you just said, why don't we just play the next one? But I actually have come around to your side of this a little bit on Lost. When you watch mm-hmm. each episode, each episode kind of very quickly, you don't necessarily have to focus on the individual mysteries, but you start to then think about what the larger narrative story and the messages that they're trying to tell, uh, which I think are way better than the mystery that they're trying to make you try to figure out. And I think that The Leftovers, when the way it just ended uh, at the end of season one, left me not really that excited. But now that if I would go to rewatch it, and now that maybe people would watch it now, if they were to start watching Binging today, they could skip over those issues that I had with season one and just immediately go into two and three. And it makes season one, which was critically necessary, this, the just utter grief and depression and that season one is it's necessary for seasons two and three to make sense you know what i mean so you can't really start watching it on season two you have to get through season one uh so overall i would say 4.5 it's in my top 10 favorite television shows of all time i would say that it probably right now it's like eight uh and if i rewatch it again maybe it'll maybe even go higher up the list you actually have a top 10 list I have an idea of a top 10 list. I, I think I've written it down a couple years ago, but it's got some stuff like it's got the Wonder Years on there. It's got Quantum Leap. It's got one. It's got, uh, <laughs> you know, it's got the okay. West Wing. It's got Lost. Um, I have a rough idea of where all these would be, but I would say that the leftovers is within that realm. Wherever that realm may be. I want to suggest some other books that you might be interested in or other content. If these are topics that, that, that interest you. So I have some things to recommend. Maybe Joel has some stuff to to recommend before he departs from our podcast. The three things I would recommend. One, an episode of Radio Lab that I referred to earlier. It's from 2014 called Buttons, Not Buttons. It's a great episode about how there are ideas that we have of of processes or machines that buttons are there, but they're not actually buttons. And, And nuclear weapons, like the red button, it's kind of a similar thing. There isn't actually a red button that launches anything. Uh, but it also gets into the, the the Roger Fisher story. I wouldn't be surprised if this is where Damon Lindelof got the idea for this episode. I would also recommend a short story uh, by Nancy Collins, uh, which is I'm not going to be able to pronounce this, but it's a it's Infinglia, which is like a Greek goddess. Uh, but it's a part of an edited volume called "There Won't Be War" in 1991, and it's a story of a young girl who was chosen to be a vessel for the nuclear launch codes. She was forced to be the volunteer and it's from her point of view. And it's a very short story and it's very powerful and you can get it, your hands on it. Um, I think it's worth checking out because it shows 
the perspective of what someone would be like and their responses to being a, a quote-unquote volunteer, kind of like a volunteer in more like the Hunger Games uh, scenario. And finally, I'd recommend an article uh, in the Nonproliferation Review from 2007. This is much more of like in my realm of, of nuclear policy thinking. Uh, it's called The Last Nation to Disarm. Uh, by Bruno Taratus, and the article is about France and its nuclear posture and why it would be the last country to disarm. Uh, it's kind of similar to the themes that we talked about here, but it would be a good look if you want to find out more about France's thinking on these issues. Uh, Joel, do you have anything to to recommend here? Um, I would recommend Lost, now that we've wrapped up uh, The Leftovers, if you're looking for another show with many different paths to pursue. And then, because, you know, it's Damon Lindelof, and I was just going back through his list of things, and I was like, oh, yeah, uh, I'm going to recommend Nash Bridges, oh, yeah. which he wrote for between 2000 and 2001. Uh, if you really want to dig deep into the deep cuts <laughs> of Damon Lindelof, definitely check out Nash Bridges. How much nuke uh, stuff in Nash Bridges? Uh, you know, nothing comes to mind, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Because you know, if there's anyone who could hide stuff in a show, it was Damon Lindelof. And, on the and on the seventh viewing of the show, really, yeah. it's where that stuff starts to come through. Well, good recommendations. Thanks, uh, Joel. I appreciate you being the co-host here, being my everyday viewpoint on the podcast. And I'm I'm sad to see you depart from the show, but I'm I'm happy to see that you are in a new position with a new job that will keep you interested and engaged and I'm, well sir we'll still see movies together i'll still be soliciting your feedback but the new co-host will be gabe our, our friend gabe who was a guest on a number of our star trek episodes he was on the martian he's another great person who doesn't think about nukes on a day-to-day -day basis because you know he's a normal person but he's someone who brings a, a great insights on on pop culture and movies when one person departs another one comes in that's how we'll do it. But maybe every once in a while we'll have a flashback forward sideways uh, where you'll come back on if you have some free time. I know you want to talk about Aliens at some point, so maybe we can do that. The movie, the, the Aliens franchise. Thanks very much, Joel. And uh, I don't know if you have any parting words. Uh, no, just that it's been a lot of fun. Thanks to Tim, who everyone obviously uh, understands is doing the, the bulk of the heavy lifting here. I'm merely in the peanut gallery throwing uh, taunts at Tim from ab above. But uh, no, it's been good, and uh, definitely the conversation will continue. So I'm sure I'll hear and uh, talk to uh, all of you out in the parking lot somewhere. So after the movie, I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. Facebook. Facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. We've got some good content there, and that's a good way we've engaged with some of our listeners. Uh, Twitter, at Nuclear Podcast. There's some good content there, and it's a great way that we go back and forth about episode ideas and, and questions to cover. And we also check our email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed the program, if you enjoyed having Joel on, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe on iTunes and, and leave a review. Hopefully five stars, maybe as a parting gift to Joel. Uh, tell us some of your favorite Joel-isms or favorite Joel comments, favorite Joel episodes, uh, what you'll say to Joel if you receive in the parking lot, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, leave that on our iTunes review, and we'll, I'll make sure that Joel sees that. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Joel. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it.